Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, hello. Um, my name is Francine Stock, and um, I am, as indeed billed, going to be speaking this afternoon um, to Kazuo Shiguru. Now, the format of uh, the thing is that uh, it will be, will be a conversation, but it'll be a conversation for about the first 40 minutes, and um, then we'll have at least 20 minutes or so of questions, so do bear in mind what you might like to ask a little bit later on. Um, and uh, basically, we will take it from there. So I don't think the Kazuo Hishiguro needs much introduction, but I will just give you the barest bones of one before we start to talk, uh, which is that he was born in Nagasaki, Japan, in 1954, but came to this country where he was brought up in the south of England at the age of five, settled here. His novels, well, the first novel straight away did extremely well, and A Pale View of Hills won the uh, Winfred Holby Award from the Royal Society of Literature. Now, the next novel won the Whitbread Book of the Year in 1986, An Artist of the Floating World. In 1989, getting better and better, he went on to win the Booker Prize for The Remains of the Day, which was, of course, subsequently made into a Merchant Ivory film with Emma Thompson and Anthony Hopkins. The Unconsoled followed in 1995, and his new novel, When We Were Orphans, is just published this year. In the new novel, the history, uh, the, the hero, Christopher Banks, is a detective, or so he tells us, anyway. But I, I wonder whether with all your books, in a sense, because they are about a degree of self-deception, you are inviting the reader to be a detective, to pick up the little clues that show the gap between the way the narrator or the principal character sees events and the way that the reader might do. Yes, I guess so. I, th I think in all my books, to some extent, I've asked the reader to be a detective. In, in that way, and I, and I suppose we're we're all kind of quite used to this, aren't we? I mean, we're, we've become quite sophisticated about um, the way we listen to politicians say, or um, the way we listen to each other. We don't always take take what people are saying at face value, um, and I think particularly in, in in this day and age, when when we see a lot of people on on television or on the radio, I mean, we. I think we were very tuned in to, to, uh, to trying to find, you know, find out what, what people are really saying behind the words, or whether they are in fact covering things up. We have become quite expert at, uh, at being detectives in this sense, and so I, 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 I feel, in a way, I'm not asking anything unusual. Um, uh, this assumption that people can can do this, that, that you, they can they can encounter a person and and immediately start asking, well, where are they coming from? Are they telling the truth? Um, and a lot more subtle than you know, is the person lying? Is, is the person telling the truth? You know, why is the person saying this? Are they are they being defensive? And is that why they're saying that? Or uh, so a detective in that sense, I guess. And of course, in this latest novel, yes, I mean, the man thinks he's literally a detective. Um, I suppose that's, that's more coincidental than anything else. I mean, my, um, in a sense, all my books demand the reader become a detective. It is, it is a very interesting thing to take the idea of, of, of somebody who, 
as, as we say, I mean, without labouring this too much, thinks he's a detective. Anyway, because your expectation is already there of a detective novel, and because it's set in the 1930s, um, and it's set in... I mean, you do have... There are times when it moves to the country house location, and, and then it's also subsequently in Shanghai. Um, but already you are inviting people to come through an area where they think they can already hear the music and see the frocks, um, and they're invited into that kind of genre. And that in itself is also quite teasing, I think, isn't it? Yes. Um, it, well, it, it was. Uh, well, uh, let me be frank. I mean, I, I, it was supposed to be more of a kind of a pastiche detective novel than it turned out. I mean, when I when I started off um, uh, writing this thing, I did very much have a scheme in mind of, of a kind of a parody, if you like, of, of one of those golden age detective novels. You know, the kind of um, Dorothy Sayers or Agatha Christie type novels, because the, that whole genre did fascinate me. I mean, it's, it's quite a derided. Uh, genre now, even amongst um, you know crime fiction fans, but a lot of people tend to look down on that era because the the characters tend to be very flat. Um, the view of the world, the view of human nature, and the view of what evil is seems to be ludicrous quite often. And uh, and those books, I suppose, are often accused of um, being uh, being in a very dubious sense, nostalgic about, uh, say, the, the ideal English village where everybody knows their place. Um, but uh, these very things fascinated me about, about that genre, um, uh, particularly in, in, in that historical context. The, all these Agatha Christie's, Dorothy Sayers, um, they, t they, they were all, uh, they prospered and flourished immediately after the Great War. When the people writing them and reading them must have known in a way that we probably don't, that, you know, the real nature of evil and suffering. And, and that was the generation that had you know, lost a whole lot of young men and had really encountered modern warfare in all its horrors for the first time. And so it seemed to me very interesting that it, it's within that context that, that people wanted this particular kind of escapism. The, the very beautiful village that works perfectly, except just one little thing has gone wrong. You know, the, the vicar has been poisoning people or something. <laughs> and, and all it takes is for this detective, this person from the outside, to come and go click, and everything's working again. This, this kind of longing, this wish that evil could be like that, you know, that something occasionally creeps out and you can put it back in the box again. And, and I suppose that assumes that you know, bad things in life happen. It's the kind of Professor Moriarty idea of you know, wh why bad things happen in the world, that there is some sort of master criminal behind it or a criminal behind it. And all you have to do is get rid of this force and things will work again. Whereas, of course, as I say, it, that was the time in history when people were confronted, probably for the first time, with that, sort of, in, with that kind of... Uh, to that extent, with, with the idea that, yes, I mean, uh, terrible things happened in life, not because of Professor Moriarty, but because of these uncontrollable forces that have been unleashed, you know, nationalisms, racism, hatred, just, just you know, war going, and, and the technology of war just getting out of hand. Um, uh, and so it, it, it did, so that genre, interested me for that very reason. So this is a rather long-winded uh, response to your question, I realize, but I mean, uh, um, th th this is 
why I became interested in, in the detective figure. I thought, wouldn't it be fun to have one of these rather cardboardy detectives from that kind of genre being actually thrown into, thrown into the 1930s uh, as it moves towards more turmoil, a man who thinks he can solve the world's problems with his magnifying glass. And I did have this image of the man um, you know, examining, ending up examining um, corpses in a war zone um, with, with his magnifying glass, thinking he, he might be able to find who did it. You know. <laughs> but it is, it's a tremendously um, powerful idea because even as you realize uh, that things are going seriously wrong in his great schemes to, to solve the world's ills, you still so much want him to succeed that um, as a reader you're, you're drawn in um, and you find the sort of discrepancies between what he really thinks he's after and, and what is beginning to happen. I mean, it's, it's a deeply disturbing, in some ways, it's a deeply disturbing experience I found reading the book. Um, unlike, I mean, the closest thing I could think of was that it really was like one of those lucid dreams you have when you think that you're getting close to something and then, extraordinarily enough, it veers off in another direction. Um, I wondered if it was whether you were after that quality of dream to an extent. Yes, well, it's always very dangerous to, to suggest your book is like a dream because when people <laughs> yes, it sounds people get very bored with that. Uh, I, I, but uh, but I have to confess, yes, I, I am quite fascinated by some of the images and atmospheres of dream. Um, I, I say this with great caution because you know sometimes my wife says in the morning, I had a very interesting dream. <laughs> you know, I, I immediately sort of <laughs> switch off. Uh, um, uh, because, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's basically certifying that this, you know, the next few minutes will lead nowhere. But I am actually very interested in, if not dream per se, that, that certain qualities of it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm quite interested in creating a kind of world in, in, in fiction that is so, somewhere between realism and, and, a, and a kind of a version of it that takes place in people's minds and emotions. Um, um, I, I'm not so interested in mad, unreliable narrators. Um, I get very annoyed when, I'm, when I read a rather interesting book only to find two-thirds of the way through that the man is narrating from a mental hospital and, and nothing's really happening. Um, <laughs> but but, uh, um, but I, 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 do, I do like the kind of fiction, and I suppose also you know, the kind of music or the kind of paintings that seem to somehow get beneath the surface of, um, of, of, of reality, that, that, that tries to orchestrate the, the emotional realities of people's lives. So it, it, to, to take an example from this actual book, um, um, I, you, know, it, 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 you often hear sort of cliche um, when people say, this person is, is, works like that in his career because he's trying to somehow um, succeed where his father failed or or, for instance, you know, he, he's never got over his um, his wife's death, and he's he, he's basically trying to um, uh, you know, recreate his his uh, wife again in this new person. Of course, we don't mean these things literally. Uh, 
Um, but sometimes it seems to me it'll be interesting to, to write that emotional truth, you know, literally. And so here, here in this book, here, here, here's a detective who, who wants to go back to his childhood um, to solve the mystery of what happened to his parents. Uh, but emotionally, I suppose, he believes that if only he could do that, he can just pick up where he left off as a child and everything will be happy again. All the things that went wrong in his family will be put right again and they can just start exactly where they left off. And of course, that, that's an emotion that we, we'll metaphorically recognize in, in, in people, but you, you don't normally represent it in a literal way. And I quite like this slightly dreamy landscape where you can have this as a literal ambition. Now he, so this guy thinks if he goes back to Shanghai you know, 30, 40 years later, if only he can find his parents who've been kidnapped, and he believes that all this time they've been kind of holed up in some, in some hideout held by kidnappers, which is what he believed when he was, he was a small child. And, and that all, he, all he has to do is find that house, and uh, then everything that went wrong since then will, will, will disappear. Uh, and of course that is a rather dreamy logic, but sometimes I think that in fiction there's an opportunity to bring these rather dreamy logics to, to, a, to, a, to a more kind of hard, realized um, kind, of, kind of representation, and I'm quite interested in doing that. Yeah, it is a dreamy logic, but it's actually something that we all try and do, isn't it? At some stage we all like to rewrite our parents' histories and just make them a little bit happy, and we want to want to make things right in some way at some stage in our lives for our parents. Yes, I mean it may not be to do with our parents necessarily, but and you know I think most of us to some extent we share. Well, I shouldn't speak for everybody, but I think you know a lot of us perhaps share share a sense of disappointment um, that perhaps the the world isn't quite such a nice place that we were led to believe when we were very young children. I, th I think, um, you know, I mean, I, I know you have young children, um, but, uh, but, you know, when, when children are, say, three or four or five, you notice that how frantically the world conspires to keep up this, um, keep up this charade that, you know, everything is terribly nice. And you go for a walk and everyone suddenly puts on this little smile and, the, and they, they, they talk to the, the child in this very special way. Um, Everyone enters into this conspiracy, and I, I think many of us, you know, un until a certain age, we are led to believe that you know, darkness you know, and nasty stuff doesn't really exist, nearly to the extent that it actually does. And, and I suppose most of us have, have, at some point, had to make that journey from that rather sheltered bubble uh, out into the harsher world. And even if we haven't had to do that in a traumatic way, I think we there's a, probably a small part of us that always uh, ha carries that sense of disappointment that things weren't as nice as we, we once hoped they would be. It sometimes shows itself in a kind of nostalgia, I suppose. But, um, and that, that, that's what this book is to a large extent about, so, someone who takes this to a, to a bit of an extreme. But is the element of, of self-deception that characterizes a, a, a number of the figures in your novels is it always to do with that discrepancy between the way life really is and the way that they rather hoped it might be? Um, well, I, 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 um, 
I don't know if it's quite that gap, actually. I mean, it's, it's often... The self-deception of my narrators in my earlier books, I think, is, is, is the self-deception that is perhaps necessary when quite late in your life, um, when it's too late, perhaps, to substantially change the course of your life, you actually start to realise that there are some grave shortcomings about yourself. Um, um, and I, I, I guess in that situation, um, yes, you have to have a certain amount of self-deception. I mean, um, but so, so people like Stevens the butler in The Remains of the Day, I mean, he, he seems like a very self-deceived man, but I, I suspect that he's no more so than any of us would be um, inside ourselves I mean, um, when we face uh, the possibility that perhaps we've you know, we've failed in some kind of big, profound way. I don't think we'll just sort of go, oh yes, yes, it was all a bit of disaster, I'd accept that. I think we, we, we will spend a long time struggling with ourselves, trying to persuade ourselves it's not quite so bad. Um, but in the end, I think there's a kind of a dignity, that something admirable when people do finally come to terms with what they did do or the shortcomings uh, in, their, in their life. Um, but it, you, you often have a lot of self-deception to sort of wade through before you, before you get there. Um, you know, I, I'm not against self-deception or, or for it. I just think it's it's there. It's a part of. It's the kind of anaesthetic that we need to uh, in life. I think to, and sometimes we, we. It's the only way in which we can arrive at things is to is to arm ourselves with a bit of self-deception and slowly dump bits of it. But you always feel that, um, when you say that there's something rather admirable about coming to terms with it, you always think that that is, that's the state that people should be aiming towards. Sorry, I didn't quite that, hear you. Well, the coming to terms with it is something that people should be doing. You don't think that there's, um, there's well, an argument for carrying on in that state of... Well, I, I guess it depends. Well, I think there's a, part, there's a part of people that wants to see things honestly. Um, I mean, well, it, it depends what it is, you know, what, what's happened in your life. But, you know, I, I think there is a big impulse to, to be honest, perhaps not to the outside world, but at least to yourself. You know, so if you, if you suspect, for instance, that you've been an awful parent or an awful spouse or an awful son or daughter, um, you know, I, I, don't, I think it's quite difficult just to kind of put that away, you know, and, and pretend... Pretend it's not happening. I think. I think the, the. This is what makes people very interesting for me. I mean, they, they, they do have this impulse towards honesty, um, and actually trying to figure out what really did happen. Uh, and, and so, certainly in my earlier novels, that there's usually this battle going on between this impulse to see their lives clearly and to assess themselves clearly, um, and this other voice that says, "No, no, you know, it, it was all right. Don't worry." Um, no, you, you've been a great guy. Because your first two novels dealt with Japan in the aftermath of the war. Um, was that discussed at home? Because obviously your, your parents had come from Nagasaki, and, and um, as I said earlier, they settled in the south of England in the early 60s. Um, but was the war still a topic at home? Uh, yes, it was, but not, in a, not as a kind of a subject. Um, it, it was just there in a very natural way. So if, uh, for instance, my mother was telling me or you know, the children you know, about a, a relative or a friend of hers at school or something, 
it would often naturally kind of slide into war experiences. You know, um, she wouldn't necessarily say, look, you know, I want to tell you about the war. Um, but you, uh, um, you know, I was born only nine years after the war, so it's, it's very natural that a lot of the things you heard, um, and I'm sure it's the same for, for you know, people here who, who are my age and older. I mean, they'll, they'll remember that um, even if you're born after the war, I mean, um, at school and so on, I mean, it's, it was very, you always had that as a background where, when older people talked, uh, whatever they're talking about, you know, that was the backdrop. I suppose because my uh, mother's stories tended to t take, well, war in this case ten tended to be Nagasaki and the atomic bomb, it, it had perhaps a, an extra dimension to it. Um, but I, I must say, I didn't actually realize there was anything that special about the atomic bomb until I was quite old. Um, I grew up thinking every city had an atomic bomb. Um, it, it's part of this thing I'm I was talking about the, the, the way children are protected from these things. Because I, um, I remember this word, Genshi Bakudan, the J Japanese word for atomic bomb, being used over and over throughout my childhood in Japan and then subsequently in England. And, um, um, but nobody really uh, you know, told me what, what it meant or what, what it really was. So I just thought it was a bomb. And people would say, you know, that shop, that row of shops used to be there until the bomb. or they'll be telling me about somebody and then they'll say, but of course um, she died with the bomb. And, and um, I thought there was this thing called the bomb. You know, if you grow up like that, you think every town's got a bomb. And um, I only discovered really in, in Guildford um, when I was at school, when I was about eight years old, and I looked it up in an encyclopedia to find out a bit more about this atomic bomb and discovered that Nagasaki was only one of two places in history to have been atom bombed and, and I feel, uh, I remember discovering this with a kind of an odd sense of pride actually, it was, it was very curious but, but it, it, it was very much that way round, you know, that, that war was there as part of what had happened um, rather than as a kind of a big subject. But didn't, uh, what about the other boys at school when you went to school in, in Guildford eventually? I mean, the, you, they must have been so much aware of the discrepancy between your family's history and theirs. I don't think they were. I think I was. Perhaps we should reveal at this point that you're from Guildford too. <laughs> <laughs> we both grew up in Guildford. Um, um, so I, I, perhaps you can bear witness to some of this. I mean, uh, but um, I, uh, a lot of my friends. Uh, well, I, I suppose Britain in those days w w wasn't very sophisticated about things like multiculturalism and so on. Um, there were no other foreign people I met at all for about the first five years of my life in England. And the only way people could really relate to me was as an honorary English kid. You know, if they liked me, they, they just said, well, he's English. You know. And so I, I remember there were these awkward moments when in the playground people would want to play war. Um, I, I, perhaps that's died out from playgrounds in this country now, but in those days this was a very popular thing to do. You played war. Well, perhaps you didn't because you were a girl. But boys <laughs> always played war. And there were all these war comics as well, um, with all these kind of gung-ho stories. And so basically you divided up between you know, the, the English and, and, and the Germans, and occasionally the, the Japs. You know. And I, I do remember feeling slightly ambivalent when, when, this, when, when the Japs came into it. But I, I would always try and persuade my friends to, let's do it against the Germans. <laughs> uh, 
but they didn't seem to sense anything particularly odd about this. Uh, you know, they, they kind of couldn't quite handle it. But it was very much there. And, I, and of course, I did sense very much that for my friends, um, the, war, the Second World War, as they'd heard about it, was a triumph. It was something they were proud of. Um, and their parents talked about it with, uh, as a triumphant, successful thing. You know. um, and, and I only knew about it as a, as a tragic, sad thing. Um, uh, and yes, I, I had it from the loser's point of view. I was too young then to, to sort out things like you know, who, was, who was the guilty party in the war or whatever. Um, I, I, it was just about winners and losers um, then. But yes, I, I, I did sense that there was something profoundly different about the attitude of my parents, particularly my mother, towards war. And the rather, I wouldn't say it was a pro-war feeling in Britain then, but it was certainly quite different to the attitude that exists towards war today, I think. And it, it was seen as something triumphant, something good to be playing or talking about. You know. um, and, uh, and it was one of the large areas, I suppose, where I felt a distance from English society as a whole. But of course, I played along with it. But I, that, that area of feeling that you know, you're, you're slightly acting here, that inside you there is another person who was rather distant from this. I think that was one of the big areas where, where that, that was true for me. It was around war. Because yeah, the, the terrible irony is I, I was looking at something from the early 60s, a, a, a factual thing the other day, and that even in the mid-60s that people were still talking about the atom bomb in a very kind of endorsing way, something rather sort of exciting and actually quite sexy. And, little, and also I remember from the Molesworth books about that area, you know, that, that, that they would talk about it in this very... Uh, I mean, you must have found that very difficult. Well, as I say, I, did, I didn't really know what to make of it. You know, I don't think I had the kind of moral perspective then. Um, you know, in fact, I, I was probably guilty of trying to... Um, Benefit to some extent from what you call the sexiness of the atomic bomb. You know, it, it, it and I, 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 I often, even now as an adult, and certainly when I first start, started to write, I had to consciously rein back the temptation to use Nagasaki and the atom bomb as a kind of PR thing. Um, particularly if you participate in kind of literary fiction, as I do. Um, there are, I think, you know, market dynamics just about literary books as much as any other sort of book and and I, it's very tempting to to use certain serious obviously serious subjects like the atom bomb or the holocaust to to give your writing or yourself some kind of spurious weight that you wouldn't otherwise have i think there is such a thing as a kind of pornography of seriousness and when i first started to publish in the early 80s it, it was very much a time when people were concerned about um, a nuclear shootout between the Soviet Union and, and, and the West. And um, the whole CND thing had revived again. And, and of course, I was being asked um, by all kinds of people to, to some extent, I was being invited to play up to this, the guy from Nagasaki. And my first book indeed had Nagasaki as a backdrop. And I, it, I, I, I've always been very wary of that, um, but th th there is always this temptation, I think, to evoke things like Nagasaki, a kind of a, a false authority that comes from using, the, mentioning these things. 
I'm not suggesting that people shouldn't write about them, but I, I'm just simply saying that there's a temptation sometimes to just use them in the way that you know, other people might use sex and violence for another kind of novel, that you can use certain kinds of big, serious things in, in literary novels. Uh, and war, I think you do have to be very careful about war or atomic war, um, Holocaust, and all these things, uh, how you use them in fiction. Um, I think this thing that what you talk about about the atomic bomb um, in those days and the, the, the apparent sexiness of it, I mean, I think to some extent, don't you think we still do it now um, about you know, conflicts around the world? I mean, we, of course, we've got into the habit of talking about war and conflict in a much more respectful and, and regretful tone, but... I do sometimes think that you know, there is still this sense that yes, there, there is something sexy about, about kind of war zones and that you know, uh, programs or novels or whatever about them, um, it, um, you know, they, they have a certain extra thing. They're, they're not provincial little uh, dramas. You know, they're, they're, these are big things. And I think that's something to do with the sense in our generation of feeling that we are actually very far from war, that you know, we've been very fortunate to go so long without a war. And I think some, uh, particularly some young men, I think, or men in general, uh, of my generation and younger, feel, feel almost guilty about not you know, ever having had to go to war. And I think that there is some sort of odd, slightly decadent attitude towards uh, wars that are going on in other parts of the world, I think, of using them in a slightly macho way, referring to them in, in, in a way that r slightly reminds me of um, the way that, you know, things like the atom bomb was talked about. Mm. In When We Were Orphans, um, the hero, Christopher Banks, has a friend who is Japanese, Akira, and there is um, there's some discussion of, um, well, there's a quite lengthy description of, of the childhood that they spent together. Um, the fascinating thing about Akira is that he is there's quite often the prospect that he will be returning to Japan and that he's encouraged by his parents to be more Japanese. Was that something that you ever felt? I, I, I don't know if, it, if it's fair to my parents to suggest that they ever wanted me to be more Japanese. Um, but I think I was so rapidly turning English that they, they might have at least you know, tried to decelerate the process. Slightly, uh, but my my parents' attitude to, uh, was always one of visitors. You know, they they always thought the family was about to return to Japan at any moment. So, um, uh, and and they would tend to kind of discuss the 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 odd curious customs of the natives of this country <laughs> at, at, at a kind of great distance. You know, um, um, if they noticed, you know, they did things in this way, but. Um, but with, a, with quite a lot of respect as well. But, but, but it seemed to be very much observation. You know, we, we will tell the people back home about how the English behave. You know, um, so it's, let's remember this. Uh, it was more that rather than here we are living in this country, this is the way things are done in this country, um, perhaps we should adopt this way of doing things or perhaps the children should. It wasn't that kind of thing at all. It was, it was very distant. Um, and, and, and I suppose in that sense, in an unconscious sense, I'm, I, I always held that assumption that um, a lot of the English traits, a lot of the English etiquettes, a lot of the English rules um, somehow didn't quite apply to me. 
Uh, that, that definitely came from my parents, but they, they didn't consciously try and make me more Japanese. But um, certainly if I, if I reported that you know, at my friend's house, you know, you know, they, they, they say grace before eating. Uh, don't you think we should say grace? I mean, they, 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 they'll be quite respectful about that. You know, they'll say, oh, that, that's what people do here in England. And they did in those days. They would always say grace before eating. Um, uh, but, and, and I suppose so I would think, oh, so it's not something that applies to us. It's just something that applies to the English. So I, I guess in that sense, there was a certain, um, I wouldn't even call it pressure. There was a certain understanding that um, uh, we were in a little Japan inside the house, you know, um, and there's no need to do everything like my friends in, inside the house. But that, that was about the extent of it. But do you think that helped with with a degree of observation? I mean, that, you know, any novelist is bound to have. Possibly, yes. I mean, I'm not sure how observant I was um, uh, as a child, but uh, it, it gives you a certain emotional distance. And it's not just little things like grace. I, I suppose it's bigger things, like relationships. I did notice that the relationship of, of a lot of my friends, my 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 peers, you know, other little boys and girls, to their parents, was actually very different to my relationship to my parents. Um, so it wasn't just sort of itemizing a, a, a kind of rituals that the English gave out. It, 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 it ran deeper than that. I sensed that their position in, in, the, in their world was different to my position in what I thought was my world. Um, and uh, I, I, so I suppose something like that does give you a certain distance from things. But, but of course, outside of the home, I was obliged to, to function in this world. You know, I went to an English school, and, and to some extent, I remember I, I kind of pretended that at home it was the same for me as it was for everybody else. If a, a teacher or one of my friends said something that didn't really apply in my house, you know, I wouldn't immediately say, ah, but we don't do that. I mean, I would go, yeah, yeah, you know, but pretending that that was the case. Um, and so, um, so you do find yourself without really meaning to, you know, becoming a bit of an imposter at times or an impersonator. Um, I think we should ask for a few more questions. Now we have two um, roving microphones, time for you to do some work, which will move around. If you'd like to put your hands up, um, we will get them to you. And if there's anybody, question? I'm going to turn yes, this chair. one down the front. One down the, hang on, don't, don't speak till you get the microphone. It's one thing I and any line up for a second one yet? No, not so everybody shy so far. It's one thing I did want to check with you just before. I once read somewhere that you said uh, somebody had said was your very sort of you know elegant and restrained style something to do with uh, coming from a Japanese family, and you said no, it's more to do with being brought up in Guildford. Do <laughs> 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 you really think that? Um, Yes, yeah, so a mixture of the two. I mean, if you're brought up in home counties, England, uh, by Japanese parents, you, it, you're, you're unlikely to start writing like Irving Welsh. You know. but, uh, well, I'm working on, on that. So, did, so did, did we, did we have it, a question? Yes, we have this question down here. The oh, yes. Um, how close do you, uh, can you come uh, to the truth with language, you reckon? Uh, sorry, c could you just say that again? With language, how close to the truth can you come? With language, how close to the truth can one come? Mm. Um, you, do you want to, well, before you go away with the microphone, <laughs> <laughs> maybe you want to elaborate on that slightly. What, can, can, you, can you just? Um, what the, let's say, um, yeah, it's a bit difficult. Oh, yeah, it's a bit difficult to uh, 
Yeah, how truthful is language in itself with expressing things? Like you say, there's an emotional side and there's a, well, an explicit side with language. What do you, do you it's mean? It's a very difficult thing. How, how do you distinguish between the two of them, the emotional and with the... Are, are you talking about the language as it appears in, in a book, say, say in, in, in one of my books? Is it, or well, do you, are you talking about the, you know, when general. we're talking now? Yeah, you were, in, the, in the beginning you were saying, you were talking about the truth and I was thinking, how truthful can language be? Well, I think language, I mean, you know, we use, I think any one of us uses language in very different ways at any given moment. Uh, but, you know, if, if I can just make a kind of very wild generalization um, here, and uh, this, is, this is all wrong, what I'm about to say. <laughs> but, I mean, you do get the, sometimes, you, know, you get the kind of language that you might call poetic language, for want of a better word, that, that tries to grope after meanings that aren't usually accessible to ordinary language. Um, and you, you, we, we do that sometimes, you know. I was trying to do that a moment ago when we were, I was trying to express something a little bit more complicated. Or we do it, you know, in, in fiction or in poetry or in song or whatever. Um, but then other times, you know, we use language as a kind of a barrier or as a defense. We, we use it not so much to grope after meaning that is slightly beyond the words. We use it as a way of hiding meaning or obscuring meaning. I think it, it becomes a defensive tool. Um, and I, 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 you used to do Newsnight. I used to watch you on Newsnight. And a lot of the people, you, politicians particularly, who you interviewed on Newsnight tended to use language in that latter way. Um, and you can hear it any morning of the week on, on the Today programme, I think. It, you know, very careful use of the language, you know, very frightened that some, something might slip out. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's a very controlled kind of language that tries to present something and hold something back. And, um, and I think we, all right, these are, t I'm not saying, you know, we always use language in one way or the other, but these are two kind of poles, if you like, the way language can be used. Uh, and I think there are various other ways in which we can use it, you know, and I, I think it's a very flexible thing. I, I don't know if you can talk about language in a kind of an abstract, purely abstract w way and uh, about its function. I think we, it's a tool and we use it for all kinds of different things in different ways. And I suppose as a writer, since I guess we're here to talk about writing, I mean, um, I, as a writer, I tend to, at the moment, in, you know, I, I, I tend to be towards the, towards the, the language as control and, and um, prevarication and, and hiding and defense. I, mean, I, I tend to be at that end rather than sort of the Joycean kind of end of um, trying to bend language uh, to, to stuff that you, uh, to convey meanings that can't usually be conveyed. Um, but I, but you know, I, beyond that, you know, I, I wouldn't want to attempt any big theory about language and truth. Is that because you think that um, by using language that way, it's rather like, I mean, to continue the detective uh, analogy, but it's rather like the way that, you know, detectives draw a line or policemen draw a line around the body on the, on the pavement, that in a sense it's what you, what you can understand around it that helps you understand the shape inside. Well, that, that, that would yeah, in, in terms of technique, that's how, say, my books would work. I mean, you, you, the reader gets to know, um, 
gets to know about a particular character often by uh, what he doesn't say. You know, um, because you start to think, well, yes, well, why does he keep avoiding that? Why, why does he protest so much about that? You know, and so on. And, so, and, and, and you do start to build up a, or, uh, an image, almost like a, a negative in, in a, in a, on film or something. But uh, yes, that, that, but as I, as I said earlier, I think, I think we, we're well tuned to doing that anyway. You know, I think as we, we, we've all become quite sophisticated about that, deciphering that kind of language. Yes, just up at the back, gentleman at the back here. Thank you. Um, whilst I've always enjoyed your books immensely, I've also found, I think, every single one of them disturbing in one way or another. Is that, uh, do you find your books disturbing yourself when you write them? <laughs> and do you deliberately set out to try and disturb your readers? Well, I, I, what, disturbing in what sense? I mean, it's not in a kind of Anne Rice sense. Or, uh, 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 I mean, I, d I don't intend to disturb people in the sense of giving them nightmares or anything like that. But um, I suppose I've often written my novels as a, ki as a kind of... Uh, they are kind of warnings to myself at various points in my life. You know, um, they're a way of guarding against complacency. And they've traditionally been that for me. Um, and so but perhaps they might disturb you for, for that reason. I, I don't think of myself as a disturbing writer, you know, um, in the conventional sense. You know, I, you know, I try to write quite entertaining <laughs> sort of fun books, really. <laughs> but... But I suppose, for instance, just to give an example, you know, uh, when I was uh, kind of in my late 20s, early 30s, I suppose I, I, I went around with a crowd of people who were involved in sort of social work and kind of left-wing kind of voluntary action of one sort or another. And I suppose it, it was a time when... It, the climate was such that uh, you know, we were obliged to present ourselves as being very confident about what was right and wrong. Uh, that that you know, it wasn't a time to um, procrastinate and say, oh, yes, well, you know, maybe there's something what Mrs. Thatcher says, but on the other hand... I mean, it wasn't that kind of climate at all. And I suppose I, I, I grew up in that atmosphere earlier in, in student politics and, and so on, when, when people did very rapidly you know, form, a kind of form dogmas and positions about what was good and what was evil. And we were the goodies and we were fighting against the, the, the others. And um, I suppose in that kind of climate, coming from my Japanese background and remembering that only a generation before, um, I suppose my parents' generation, a whole lot of people in Japan you know, actually were convinced they were doing something great and, uh, by, by you know, supporting the militarism and the patriotism that led to the, to the war and the invasion of China and so on. Um, when, you've, when you do have that kind of background, uh, there's an instinct to kind of pull back when, when, uh, when you're all saying, yeah, let, let's go and man the barricades. And, and I guess I've always, I, I did always write a lot of books as a kind of a, a way of pushing myself back and saying, look, you might think you're, you're, rather, you're rather smug now and think you're doing something rather good, um, but 
actually, you know, further down the line, you might have a different take on this, and things might not be the way they look to you now, because that's always been the case with other people. Um, and I, I suppose in that sense, I've tried to disturb myself. Um, and so poss uh, possibly they, they disturb you for that reason. I don't know, they might disturb you for a totally different reason. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you've uh, remains of the day was set in the 1930s, and the new one is set in the 1930s as well. Is, is there anything in particular that draws you to that period? Um, I, it's not the 1930s per se. Um, I, I think I think that it, it, this is something that applies not just to me, but I think to a lot of writers. Of, of my generation, uh, I mean, okay, this is once again a very loose phrase I'm, uh, when I say my generation, but I think there is a problem that, and I, I don't know if Francine encountered this in, in, as a novelist, but um, there is this sense that the, time, the contemporary times we live in here in, in Western Europe or Britain, let us say, um, it's, it's not an obviously interesting landscape for a novelist. Um, it might well be but it's not obviously so, um, in that you know, we, we live in a safe, affluent corner of the world uh, during a safe and affluent time in history. And, and I think, um, certainly when I started to write in the late 70s, there was, there was a sense that, well, if you, you know, he wanted to write about the big issues of the day. You know, he wanted to write about, yes, if he wanted to write the big books, um, it, it, you somehow had to leave contemporary Britain um, because it was just too much of a kind of a safe provincial backwater. And there was almost a kind of a perverse envy of writers in oppressed countries or in, or in Africa or, in, or places with great poverty and war, you know, uh, rather decadent, but I, I do remember this. And I think there was a feeling that if you wanted to write about the, the big clashes of ideology in the world or whatever, that you had to either move geographically and set your novels you know, in Africa or wherever, in, the, in Poland or something, or, or if you didn't feel confident about doing that because you weren't confident about those cultures. Uh, the other option was you, know, you could move back in time to, to a point when, say in Britain, you know, things really were up for grabs, unlike now. Um, and I think that's part of the reason I, I've always been drawn to periods you know, like the 1930s or the 1950s, just before or after the war. And I think it's for that reason that there's, there's rather a striking number of contemporary books, and this continues. You know, if you look at books like you know, Birdsong or the Pat Barker trilogy or uh, de Bernier's uh, Captain Corelli's Mandolin, or, uh, you can go on and on, as, as, as well as a lot of books by Ian McEwan or... Well, yeah, uh, I mean, a lot of contemporary writers have, have tended to use either the Great War or, or the Second World War or the lead-up to them because it, it does seem to be a time when, uh, when you know, th things are right on the edge. Um, uh, and I think possibly I, I've tended to use history in that sense, and that that's partly why I've been drawn to that time. I've never had a fascination for that era per se. I, I've always... But often I need, I need a time when values are crumbling. Not necessarily a war, but a time when values are changing and crumbling. There was a hand up immediately. You've been up for a while. There we are. And then, 
Can you hang on a moment? It's not turned on. No. In the remains of the day, was the character of Lord Darlington based on a true-life lord in the 1930s? Um, well, the simple answer to that is no. He wasn't based on any single person. But um, it, it was certainly the case that there were a lot of um, members of the aristocracy who, who did get rather involved with the appeasement of the time. Um, and... Uh, uh, but he wasn't actually based on any any single person. But I was actually very interested in that whole phenomenon um, because I didn't want to present just the figure of an aristocratic kind of pro-Nazi. Um, I was actually interested in, in this. Uh, what fascinated me was that there did seem to be a certain type of old English gentleman who perhaps was already out of his depth um, in, in the 1920s. Um, who, who very much believed in these old traditional ideas of fair play um, and war being rather like um, a rugby match. You know, um, and, uh, and I think there was, there was a whole generation, I think, of rather decent, well-meaning Englishmen of the upper classes who, who felt that after the first war, the Germans had been treated very unfairly that you know, their, their instinct was to say, well, you know, when you've, when you've knocked a man down, you should help, and you won, you, know, you, you help them up and brush them down and, and you make friends with them. You know, that, that was the way they were taught things should be done. And, I, and what fascinated me was that this rather very, very English, very decent instinct was actually manipulated and used by, uh, by this whole generation of Nazis, far more ruthless customers, you know, um, who could manipulate that kind of thing. And so that, that's what interested me about those particular aristocrats, rather than uh, that they were pro-Nazi. It's that manipulating and using of what is essentially a very decent instinct, but perhaps in the modern world, a, a hopelessly naive kind of decency that, that interested me. Time for the hands down here. One more, one or two more. Yeah, please. Um, a, recent a recent reviewer said that you, uh, I think rather disapprovingly, that you didn't really inhabit the English language. Okay, can I just see that? A recent reviewer suggested you didn't really inhabit the English language in your writing because you didn't use phrasal verbs. Um, I think this is an interesting thing. I've listened to you tonight, and you've used 14 phrasal verbs. Do you see a, a dislocation between the language you use in real life and your novels? I think you've explained why you don't use phrasal verbs in your, in your novels, but is it, is it part of your own language? The question was about um, that a recent reviewer had uh, suggested that, um, uh, that you didn't inhabit the English language because... Uh, um, one of the examples was a lack of use of phrasal verbs, but 14 have been spotted tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a particular review which I read with interest in The Observer uh, by Philip Henscher, I think. Um, and it, I immediately went to the dictionary to find out what a phrasal verb was. <laughs> <laughs> and, and since then, I've been trying to sort of face them into my, <laughs> into my life. <laughs> Um, but I, 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 don't, I don't know. I mean, the, the, you have to distinguish between me and my, my narrators. Um, 
But I mean, this, this is um, a very peculiar thing about, you know, a technical thing about voice in, in the novel. Uh, and, and it is a difficult area because you don't know to what extent, particularly if it's a first person narrative, you know, to what extent the, the voice you are reading in a book belongs to the character who is narrating and to what extent it's the author's. You know, and, and, um, uh, and this is something I'm not entirely sure of myself, I have to be, uh, admit. Um, I mean, j j just ignoring the phrasal verb problem for the time being, <laughs> I, I have to, if I can make a kind of a confession, um, you know, wh when I first started to write, uh, I, I just used to write uh, in the way I thought uh, was the best way to write. You know, I, I, I really wasn't up to thinking about style or anything like that. I, it was all I could do to get my sentences to, to make some clear sense. And so it was always at that level. And when I published my first novel, I did read all these reviews uh, that talked about my peculiarly detached or sometimes you know, emotionally repressed or emotionally distant or very controlled style. I mean, the, 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 uh, the adjectives were, did vary a bit, but they kept mentioning this over and over. In those days, they, they said it as a way of praising me. They said this is a very fascinating, interesting language, kind of, uh, a very interesting voice. Um, and I, I was very praised for having in invented or constructed this very controlled, emotionally distant voice. Uh, and of course, I, you know, it was just, as far as I was concerned, it was just me trying to write. <laughs> but, but when people kept praising me for this, of course, I would say yes, yes. It's <laughs> you know, it, it, it's very difficult to construct something. <laughs> but uh, and and for my first two novels, that that that's what really happened. I, I was just trying to to write sentences that that made some sense, you know, and and I, I kept getting praise for this style. And the remains of the day, I the, my third novel was the first time I actually started to ask this kind of question, the question I think that might be behind the question you just asked. I mean, you know, what, what is this stuff? You know, is it, I started to ask, well, is this actually something to do with me? Because I wasn't trying very hard to produce this. Is this just the way my voice comes out? And if so, you know, is this something worth exploring? Is this something, does this point to any dangerous or emotional shortcomings? Um, what does it point to? And for my third book, I used that same voice again, but this time self-consciously. And these questions about to what, what, to what extent is the controlled and restraint admirable, and to what extent does it just become um, ca emotional cowardice? You know, to what extent does it become destructive emotional repression? It was the first time I, I took these themes on, in the, um, in the actual book, and that's to a large extent what that book is about, you know. Um, but I, I was brought to that theme, if you like, by by what, what were initially just responses to to what, what I did unconsciously. And so, to, I mean, to, to right through to this book, I remain keenly interested in what people say about my voice. Um, um, but it's and I, but it's not a question I, I can clearly answer myself. To what extent it's me, and to what extent it's um, it's it's the subject matter and the themes I'm exploring. But uh, I, 
I, I am working on the... I'm, I'm glad to hear that statistic, that I've ma managed 14 <laughs> of those. And as soon as we get off this podium, I'm going to ask what they are as well. <laughs> In the meantime, thank you very much indeed for all your questions. I'm afraid we have to leave it there. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure. Kazuo Shiguro, thank you well, very thank much thank you, indeed. and let's, thank you for thanks and stuff. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you, Francis.